Welcome to WWDMD, a podcast that is all about peeling back the curtain on what clinicians really think and feel as they work with others. My guests, clinicians, who are also sometimes clients themselves, risk their vulnerability as they publicly share their emotional reactions to their clients, disclose their challenges in doing the work, and reveal their personal backgrounds. I'm Dr. Myers. I'm a psychotherapist in New York City with 30 years of practice experience, special in anxiety and depressive disorders, as well as sibling relationships and family systems. I'm also a professor of social work at Malloy University on Long Island. I see this as a journey of self-reflection for not only our guests, but you, because with each episode, I'm hopeful that you will learn something new about yourself. Please note that any discussion of case details have been modified to protect the privacy of our clients. What would Dr. Myers do? Today we're going to talk about my guest's personal experience with intimate partner violence and how this intersects with her current work as a social worker for older clients who are victims of abuse. With candor, she's going to share her parallel experiences to those she serves and how this parallel experience allows her to offer empathy and insight and intuitively know what this population needs, but at the same time presents emotional challenges as she navigates her own feelings and triggers when hearing her clients' traumas. So let me introduce Rachel Domenico, who is a licensed master social worker who graduated from Malloy University with a bachelor in social work and where she was awarded the New York State Society for Clinical Social Work Student of the Year Award of Excellence. She then received her master's from Fordham University in 2021. Rachel has worked with a variety of populations, including the LGBTQ, youth, justice-involved individuals, and housing-insecure veterans. Currently, she is the Elder Justice Specialist at the Weinberg Center in Bronx, New York, where she provides case management, counseling, and advocacy for older adults seeking shelter from abuse. So Rachel, can you give us a start by telling us a bit about the work you do, and then we'll get into your emotional journey in working with this population? I always knew I wanted to work in a trauma-focused field within social work. I wanted to work from a trauma-informed lens and was really focused on understanding trauma and working with other people who experience trauma. So right now, I'm a social worker at the Weinberg Center for Elder Justice, and the Weinberg Center is a confidential elder abuse shelter, and it's within a skilled nursing facility. And so our our primary population consists of older adults who are 60 and older, and many of the cases of abuse or mistreatment we see are at the hands of a family member or somebody that they really trust. Um, So a lot of the work we're doing is primarily based around being very trauma-informed and how we respond to certain things. And so from like the social work side of things, we kind of take on various roles within our clients' lives when they come into a shelter. We're doing case management, we're doing one-on-one counseling, we're doing group therapy, we're doing various forms of advocacy on behalf of our clients in so many different varieties and different settings. And I feel like a lot of stuff can come up for professionals when working with this population, but like just in general, working with people who've experienced trauma. Sure. And so I want to take this opportunity to kind of focus on some of the emotional responses that will come up. And especially when working with people who've experienced 
uh, situations that are reflective of my own. I think there's a lot that unconsciously is there. And sometimes consciously I'll start to recognize when I'm doing this work. I've told some people my experience when I was at Malloy and they know like bits and pieces of my history with this particular person that I'm going to be talking about today. But I think it's also kind of interesting because there's always been parallels. I feel like in the work I've been doing where I find myself more drawn to working in a setting that is reflective of my own or the people I'm working with have some type of experience that feels very similar to mine. I think that's a very common experience. People, yeah, I mean, it's a huge field and people tend to be drawn towards working with populations mm-hmm. that are similar, are facing similar issues that, that they've contended with, whether they're mm-hmm. aware of it or not, mm-hmm. become, become aware of that later on. Yeah. And I think it's, for me, I guess it was always kind of like, I want to be the person that I didn't have during this time. And I think that might be what a lot of people also experience. They want to be that person that they didn't have in those really tough moments. Like at one point, it was a little bit of the opposite. I, I w- was interning at, in Queen, at Queens Counseling for Change where I was working with people who have committed sex offenses. And for me, that was opposite of what I had experienced because I myself had been sexually assaulted at a young age. And here I am working with sex offenders. And so that definitely brought up a lot of emotions for me. But going into it, I guess I kind of had the expectation that that would come up. Um, and I knew that it was going to be challenging work. Was that a population that you chose to try and understand maybe what drives that kind of behavior? Yeah, I think it was from this. I think there was a lot of things that I was hoping to get out of it. And one was just really understanding what drives that behavior. And I think it was kind of, for me, an opportunity to feel like I accomplished something in myself. Like I overcame this part of my life and this trauma when in reality, I don't, I don't think that happened, um, but I think I learned a lot from it. And I think it did heal some parts of me mm-hmm. and give me a lot more understanding. Mm. But I think it also just made me a better social worker for the future. Mm-hmm. No doubt. But I'm sure that there was a lot of countertransference that came up during that internship. Mm-hmm. There definitely was a lot of countertransference that came up during that internship. But also, I think I felt... Like I had a lot of opportunities to really work through it with people in my life. And I kind of anticipated that it would. Like I always knew that it was going to happen and be there. Yeah. I mean, I think that you were very brave. I remember that because first of all, it's a very difficult, challenging placement for anybody, let alone a, an undergraduate social work student who's really hasn't worked in the field and their first foray now into the field is working with a very difficult population that is going to that that most of our society judges let alone having had an experience of being oppressed by the population that you're working with mm-hmm. so i think that you rose to the challenge pretty amazingly and i'm sure yeah that did put you in good stead to be a really good social worker and be in touch with your own emotional life and what's coming up for you as you're moving through the work with your mm-hmm. clients in whatever setting yeah it's very interesting because working there i feel like i was able to really not like step outside myself but really like focus on like this is the work i'm doing and these are the reasons i'm doing it and I think I have a very different experience when it comes to working with people who are survivors. Um, I think I feel so much more of an emotional response to them Mm -hmm. because of my own experience of being 
in a relationship that was really harmful and very abusive, kind of being on the other side and feeling like I'm overly relating at times to the people I'm working with. And you know, while I'm not an older adult, there's a lot that is very similar in terms of like the different forms of harm and the power dynamics, like the power and control dynamics that come up. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, like in the beginning of my relationship with this person, there was like this pattern of like love bombing where, you know, they were very overly affectionate and showering me with like compliments and gifts to really like gain my trust. And I see that happening a lot for the clients I work with. That's oftentimes like there's this point where this person is really trying to develop a trusting relationship with them. And then at a point it shifts and isolation is another form of abuse. And that was one that I was significantly impacted by where I was very isolated from my family and friends during this time and really being convinced that I should have certain feelings towards my family, that they're not the best of people and trying to really like separate me from Mm. really important people in my life. Mm -hmm. And so when my clients talk about that, I really can relate on such a level where I'm like, yeah, I've been there. I, I know what that was like. And it's so hard to realize it's happening to you until you're outside of that situation. When you say relate, do you mean identify? Because relate has kind of a double meaning. It means like, mm-hmm. are you relating that to them that you you know what they're experiencing? Or you're just saying you're contending with that in your own emotional psyche of... Personally, yeah. Personally, all like, these feelings yeah. are being kicked up in you, mm-hmm. right? You are so close to mm-hmm. what they are experiencing. Yeah. A lot of it's just like an internal conversation I have with myself. I don't really share with my clients that I've experienced this. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think vulnerability can be really helpful in a therapeutic relationship, but I think you have to be very mindful of when you use it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think also love bombing is such an interesting term because that tends to be the behavior of abusers in intimate relationships is somehow they know how to speak to your needs of being of needing to be loved mm-hmm. and the victim is usually drawn to that because of prior experiences of not feeling loved and now here's this person showering you mm-hmm. with all of the things that is all anybody ever wants Um, So I often say, you know, when people say, oh, you know, I'm telling you that when I met this person, they were incredibly charming and there wasn't any hint of this kind of behavior. But I do believe that our unconscious speaks to their unconscious and you're meeting Mm -hmm. on a level where you're trying to get from them something you've never received before. They know that you need that. And so therefore they found their prey to, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think. I was at a point where I felt so desperate that I just wanted somebody to like see me and love me and take care of me. And this person was giving it to me. And, you know, at times I'd be like, oh, this is moving really fast. But, you know, they would do certain things to really try and instill this trust that they didn't deserve. But because of their actions, it made me see them in such a way that I kind of felt like blinded by it. And I think I would always think back, be like, oh, but, you know, I just want to get back to that time in the very beginning when they treated me so well. And it was like, that was never who they really were. Wow. That's pretty poignant, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's pretty intense. Yeah. So you get seduced 
Mm-hmm. Way. And you keep striving to get what you need from that person who you can't get it from, which probably mm-hmm. repeats a familiar pattern of uh, earlier figures, I'm assuming, for most who, who find themselves in those mm-hmm. positions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there, you know, it always like, I feel like would come in a cycle where you'll see those parts after an activating event, I could say like, there'd be like some big blowout fight and then there'd be that makeup session and things would seem like they're going to go back on the right track. And then it was like the cycle again, where it was like slowly getting to that point again, where there'd be another big blowout fight and they'd get really angry with me. And it was just this constant cycle, but I'd see the parts of them that I so desperately hoped that were really there. Mm-hmm. And so how, how do you manage this while, I mean, what kind of feelings are being kicked up for you? I'm assuming you're not in this relationship anymore. No, 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 definitely not in this relationship anymore. Good. I was Good. very fortunate to get out when I did. I mean, it, it took a really long time for me to see what was happening. And it, it took me months afterwards to really recognize that I was in a very abusive relationship. I mean, they were constantly gaslighting me and there was a lot of financial exploitation. There was also like academic abuse that was happening and psychological and eventually physical. And so for me, it's, I feel that at times when those emotions come up, it's in a way when my clients are telling me their stories and internally, I'm thinking back to the place that I was at Mm -hmm. when I was in this relationship and remembering how difficult it was for me to really contend with the fact that I was in an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm always trying to be very reflective of that when we're doing this work and and recognizing that, you know, the way I respond to them in these moments, I need to be mindful of that, I think, because I don't want it to be based on my own emotions around my own past history. And I think that's something I still am trying to be really mindful of. That's such an important piece of insight to know that you are being potentially triggered and not to act on that based on your own need and what feelings are coming up for you. Because I I assume that it can go two ways. One is that positions you to be extremely empathic to those that you're working with. Maybe mm-hmm. to the point, as you said, that you're over-identifying and it gets in the way. In the one way, empathy can be a beautiful gift to be able to convey in various ways that you get them. Because I always say we all just want to be gotten, right? Mm -hmm. We all just want to be understood. On the other hand, your experience and now removal from, from that experience of having been abused might put you in the position that you are frustrated with them for subjecting themselves to that and you want them to get out. Mm. Are you aware of either or or both or contending with multiple feelings at once? When you say you identify, what comes up for you? What feelings are you contending with as you're hearing their stories? Mm. So when they get to the point where they're they're in our shelter, like they've broken contact with that person. And so I think something that I've been seeing is that it's a lot of working through what that relationship was to them and recognizing that what they experienced wasn't okay and that they didn't deserve it. Mm -hmm. And for me, a lot of the emotions that come up is like, I think over empathizing with their experience. But when I look at myself, just feeling angry with myself at times that I didn't advocate for myself in the situation and I didn't seek out 
various forms of accountability, whether it was through like the justice system. And with my clients, that's something we try to encourage in them if they feel that it would empower them. But I never did that for myself. I never found myself at a point where I felt empowered enough to press charges against this person for what they had done to me. And I think at times I might like I said, over-empathize with somebody that is on the fence about it or, or isn't sure if that's the type of route they want to go down. And I think I try to reflect, like, am I advocating? Am I helping them to empower themselves in this moment? Or am I thinking more about what I would have wanted during that time? Does that make sense? Yeah, but I don't know if it has to be either or. Mm-hmm. Can't, can't those two feelings exist simultaneously? And is that okay? Yeah, I think it's definitely okay that they exist simultaneously. Um, I think it's just something I'm constantly contending with in the decisions I make and in the therapeutic relationship. Am I leaning more towards what I would have wanted in this moment or am I reflecting on what this person needs in this moment right now? Yeah, so it's hard to distance yourself because Mm -hmm. you're so entwined in a way in the issues that are being talked about and the experiences that are being had by your clients. So for now, there's not enough emotional distance in terms of years of healing for you to be able to be better at that. And Mm -hmm. that'll come with time. For now, it seems the person that's really suffering or contending with it is you. So I don't think that you're I don't know if you're suggesting this, but I just want to reinforce that you're not harming your clients. What you're left with, as you said, is contending with your own emotional strife that Mm. results from working with this population. And it's kind of like a double whammy because it's hard enough to work with the abused population, the vulnerable population. And this is like a, uh, I was talking about a double whammy, but I want to say it's like a doubly vulnerable population, which I want to come back to is like, not only they're being abused, but they're part of the um, geriatric population are considered to be part of that population. I know you said 60 years old, but yep, that's what's part of the <laughs> geriatric population. And so they're contending with two identities that are extremely vulnerable and two identities that are often invisible because most people who are being abused, others don't know unless there's marks all over you, but you can certainly still be terribly hurt and injured by verbal abuse and even physical abuse if you don't happen to scar or bruise. Mm -hmm. So um, we have a misconception, right, about people and what they look like when they're being abused. And then they're also invisible just because of the age and how our culture treats that population. Mm -hmm. So it leaves those who are working with these populations, and again, this is a combination of two vulnerabilities, but emotionally holding them, which is exhausting and draining because you're holding all the sadness, grief, trauma, and variables of feelings for them while also contending with your own. This is what potentially causes burnout. This is uh, immensely burdensome And I'm not saying that in a way that you shouldn't be doing the work because thank God there are people like you who are allowing yourself to be the emotional vessels for these clients. But as part of that, you're left feeling really heavy or as you said, kind of always contending with your own feelings. And so I'll just say two things on that front. One is self-care, self-care, self-care and how important that is. But two, where's the forgiveness for yourself that you 
have of others, if you're telling them and validating them that how wonderful they were able to get out of this relationship and that it's not your fault, as you mentioned, where is that for yourself? Mm. (laughs) I don't know. Mm. I don't know. It's interesting. I think it's because I'm still working through a lot of the things that they convinced me of myself and the core beliefs I have about myself. They mean Um, the abuser? Yes. Abusers, yes. And it's very interesting because I think the most impactful things that I, I that still stick with me from the relationship is a lot of the things they told me about myself or convinced me about myself. And it's so interesting because looking back on when I was at Malloy and the way people, like whether it was my peers or whether it was my professors, the way they saw me and had such like confidence in my abilities and you know, I felt like we're always like uplifting me in some type of way in this work. When I would go home, it was the complete opposite. And I was always like being torn down. And the last thing they ever said to me before I finally like got out of that relationship was, I feel so sorry for your future clients because you're going to make a terrible social worker. Oh my goodness. And that's something I think in everything I do as a social worker is like always there with me. Those words, I think I'm always just going to carry them. And I hope one day they won't feel as bad as they do but you know it's just it's something that's kind of instilled themselves in this belief about myself that yeah you know I'm still trying to work past well so this is the core of countertransference, and this is how I always describe it is that we move through our life having certain experiences in life but also with people so relationally and we tend to take in those experiences internalize them, it's called, take them in, make them our own. And then we move through life and we externalize those feelings. So if you're abused and your abuser is telling you what a shit you are in one way or another, whatever words are used or even subtle messages, it doesn't have to be words. Mm -hmm. You take that in and you start to believe that about yourself. This is who I am. My identity has been defined by my abuser or abusers. And then you move through life assuming that other people are seeing you through that same lens that your abuser has seen you through. Mm -hmm. And we have to spend much of our life repairing that and being kind to ourselves and making that voice of the abuser much, much softer and elevating the voice of, as you said, your peers and professors and people in your life and now your clients who look up to you and your supervisor and all these people who I am sure are giving you positive feedback. And I say, I'm sure, but I don't do this false hope thing. <laughs> you know, False, these are your strengths things. I do this from experience with, with you because I was one of your professors who saw how talented, insightful, and amazing you were going to be in this field. And you have to, over time, it takes work, it takes conscious effort to dim the self-doubt, that voice now that's replaying in your head over and over and over, and really hear, really listen to the good stuff. And I mean, I had critical figures in my life that made their impact in much of the way that you're talking about, not abusive necessarily, but really critical. And so you develop a certain self-image and it's taking me, taken me quite a while to elevate that voice. It's hard work. <laughs> it is hard work. 
it's yeah. hard work. Yeah, I think it's something that I've gotten better with over time. It's taken a lot of work on myself personally and like recognizing that I feel this way about myself. I'm not really like practicing what I preach in a way, quote unquote, when it comes to the things I'm trying to work on with my clients. If I am constantly internally beating myself up all the time about the work I'm doing, it's it's not for the benefit of them and it's not for the benefit of me. And I think that's something I'm just going to have to keep working on. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you said, until it dims out. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's ever going to dim out, but it Mm -hmm. definitely dims. It definitely gets easier. It gets better and it balances out. So I think also it can get in the way because when one is so caught up in their own head and their own emotional life, it gets in the way of being present for our clients. But on the other hand, I think that your lived experiences puts you in a position that somebody who doesn't know what it's like to be abused or be criticized all the time or have their ego kind of smashed. I don't know if it's not being able to relate to the population, but like you get it. And, and that's the really interesting thing I wanted to go back to about you saying, you know, you don't share with them what you've experienced. I don't think you need to. So a lot of people in the fields, there's mixed feelings about self-disclosure. And Mm -hmm. I always say, I'm not big on it myself, but if you choose to do it, know why you're doing it and who it's serving. Is it serving you? Is it serving the client? Does it make you feel better to be able to say, I get it, I was there too? Or what you're doing is showing, I am sure, that you get it by holding them emotionally, that it doesn't even matter if they know that you've been through it or not. Because you're providing for them what they probably have never received before. And that is incredibly powerful. Mm. I have to process that. (laughs) But it's true. It's definitely true. Like, I think one of the things I try to really fundamentally do is just make somebody feel seen and heard Mm -hmm. in the work that I'm doing. Even if it's sometimes, like I was reflecting on it today that we had this one resident that came in around the time I first started and she was very traumatized when she first came into our shelter program and really was not somebody who would even give you a a word answer she was just kind of nod her head or kind of grunt as a response and you know I would just sit with her in silence for like throughout the entire session and you know I was never trying to force her to be anything but what she was in that moment Mm -hmm. and then now she's at a point where she's like, she feels like a very different person when you see her. She's making friends and she's a part of a group now and she's talking about her experience. And she asked if we could throw her a birthday party, like just completely different from when she first came into shelter with us. And I think my goal in that was, I was just trying to start where she was at and just trying to be what she needed in that moment. That's amazing. Yeah. Right. I know sometimes that doesn't feel like very much mm-hmm. when you're in it. I think now when you're reflecting on it and relating it to us, that you are celebrating that, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And, you should, and you should be, because I think sometimes we minimize what we're doing unless we see some major concrete change that we take for granted how important that is to somebody. And I feel like that's something we should all be able to relate to because as I said before, I think it's common ground. We all just want to be heard and understood and how 
bizarrely rare that is in people's lives. You know, even loved ones, loved ones that have genuinely good relationships, a lot of people don't know how to just be. Just be with somebody as they're experiencing their emotions, not feel like they have to put a Band-Aid on it, not feel like they have to make them feel better, not have to relate something that happened to them to show that they get it, not to silver line it, right? Like it's going to get better, or at least it's not this going on, but to just be able to tolerate the emotional experience somebody's having. It's huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. I feel like there's a lot I'm going to reflect on from this now <laughs> afterwards. Good. Well, good. So let me ask you about them being of the elder population. So is there a unique angle to that in your work? And can you talk a little bit about the trauma-informed piece and how that guides you or helps you understand what's happening and maybe how to work with them? Yeah, I, you know, I feel like there's a lot of things to think about in terms of like accessibility when you're even working with an older adult and trying to be trauma informed. I think really first starts from there, just making sure like, all right, can they see me? Can they hear me? Do I need to be closer to them? Being mindful if I am closer, is that going to trigger them in some type of way? Mm. I always try to practice asking permission to do certain things like because I'm coming into their space you know this nursing home is their home now for some of them right or is their temporary home for the time being and so always knocking and asking permission to come in first um, asking if I could take a seat is it all right if I move this out of the way before sitting with you and I feel like that's just like the first step and in instilling safety in that moment before even doing mm -hmm. any counseling or case management is just giving some semblance of control over the situation mm -hmm. because oftentimes they're coming from a situation where they had no control. Mm -hmm. They weren't able to advocate for their needs or say what they wanted. And I feel like for me, that's always the first step in the work I'm doing is to start giving that back to them. Mm -hmm. What was your second question <laughs> that was involved with that? Um, first? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm just thinking about how respectful that is of boundaries too, right? Which is really important to mm -hmm. working with, uh, traumatized and abused populations. So my question was, if there was a unique angle to working with the elder population that has been abused, then you're giving it mm -hmm. an example of physicality and being mindful of where they are with that. And then I was also asking just about the trauma-informed piece, which I think you spoke to as well, but I don't know if you want to get into that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think I just try to really follow like trauma-informed practices whenever I'm working with an older adult, especially just being, just having trauma awareness in general and understanding like the concept of polyvictimization that as you get older, the likelihood that you've been victimized increases and the likelihood that you've had multiple experiences of victimization is probably at a higher rate. So not only am I thinking about the trauma that they experienced in this moment that brought them here, but also prior whether it be through like life experience, whether it was like trauma from their childhood or trauma in terms of like a natural disaster where they came from, whether it is from like racism they experienced or subjugation in any way, whether the trauma of actually having to come into a nursing home. I mean, mm -hmm. transferring from one place to another is a trauma in and of itself. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So just being mindful that there's all these other elements, I think, involved when you're older that not a lot of people take into account when doing the work. I think that it's when you start to do it, that you start to understand and recognize that there's all these other layers involved. Mm-hmm. So much loss, loss of a sense of self, loss mm-hmm. of power, as you said, you know, in this kind of situation, but also layered by needing a new home and having to transition and give up everything you knew that was familiar from mm-hmm. your immediate environment to your broader environment to the people in your life and creating some distance from that and even loss of the relationship with the perpetrator. It's yeah. it's a very complex relationship mm-hmm. and it's not just relief at being free of that relationship, but it's loss of a fantasy of maybe spending the rest of your life with this person, a loss of a partnership, and however disturbed it may be, it's still a partnership. There's there's so many layers to that loss of what one's perception of love is and Mm -hmm. thinking that this is love and kind of untangling love and punishment. Yeah. Uh, It's complicated, really Mm -hmm. complicated. Yeah, and especially when it's like an adult child that's been harming you as well. You know, I think that brings out a very complex type of loss of a child that hasn't actually passed on for you, but has treated you so in such a painful way, but having to cut them out. And hopefully eventually there can be some type of restitution between them if that's what they want. But I think a lot of the times, unfortunately, adult children are primarily the abuser in a lot of these situations. Mm -hmm. Um, Because they're in the care. Well, first of all, it's very interesting because uh, somehow that was like off my radar during this discussion, right? I'm thinking (laughs) about intimate partners for some reason. Well, yeah, Uh it's definitely involved in that too. Sure, but I I think it's common that it's an adult child because they're in the position of being the caregiver. Is that correct? That can be some of the situation or instances that we see where they've taken on a caregiver role or... There might be some uh, substance use issues with the child. There's like a lot of different reasons why a child would do something like this. But I think something that I've started to learn about is the concept of like how a mother or a father might view their child as like a difficult adult child and not see them as an abuser. Mm. So I think there's a lot of grief and loss that comes with that. that, you know, it can be really, especially when there's other children that they have too, because it's like, they might still have this relationship with their other children, but there's this one child that treated them so poorly that, you know, they had to get out of that situation. It's like a death. And it makes me think about divorce, that they say that divorce is actually worse than death because the Mm. person still exists. Mm -hmm. It's like, there's no closure, like complete closure, because the person's still operating in the world and existing in the world. And so, there's often still that fantasy or hope that, as you said, there can be reconciliation. Mm -hmm. But if a person is toxic and they're not recognizing that they have issues they need to work on, then in in the name of self-preservation, one has to emotionally cut cut out that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just another layer of loss for this person that they have to go through. Right. So you understand that. You personally understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not easy to, because like for me personally, it was never easy to 
completely cut ties with this person because I still had a profound love for them. And I never wanted to see them fail in life or be hurt or I always wanted them to succeed. And, but I knew that cutting them off was the best decision to make because I knew if I stayed that I was putting myself in just an immensely vulnerable situation again, that could become so out of my depth that to the point that I, I don't know how they would have responded out of anger. It could have led to a point where it became so violent that I lost my life because their anger was so uncontrollable at times. Wow. Um, I think so for people to do that and take themselves out of that situation, I think it's very brave of them to do because it's not an easy one to make. Mm-hmm. I think I'm struck now by your experience because I think as we alluded to earlier, you never know what's going on with somebody emotionally. And here you were showing up with a very different identity. That's mm-hmm. cool where you were very sound, very focused, very intent on your education, very committed and passionate about the work that you were embarking on. Mm -hmm. And no one knew, I guess, unless you chose to share that information, what was going on behind closed doors, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's because I used academia and the education I was getting at that point as like an outlet of just like throwing myself into it to to emotionally just like get me out of the situation Mm -hmm. for however long I was in classes for when I was focusing on my schoolwork, it was like a a coping mechanism I think I was using during that time. And so, you know, I was succeeding and doing so well in this one area of my life, but I was succeeding and doing well because it was my only form of escape. Right. Right. I think it's incredibly brave of you to immerse yourself and working with a population with whom you so closely identify and have to face these feelings day in and day out because many, many of us, although steer away from it. Now, I will say that we're drawn to working with populations, as I said earlier, that we are connected to, right? But um, I don't know how close and how intense that parallel is in regard to like this situation, it's really close. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to give yourself a lot of credit for living in this hardship. And I really do believe that you will be the better for it in the long run because you are working on yourself, not only professionally, but personally. And I always say that that's the luxury of this work. I know it's very painful for quite a while, but the luxury is that you get to work on you as you're working with others. And so you're going to come through this markedly feeling better in the end. But what I like too is that you're you're share, you're putting yourself out here and showing your vulnerability again is another aspect of your bravery. But I think that my goal with this podcast is kind of to humanize social workers and therapists and that allow people to see that we are people too with flaws, with our own issues. And thankfully, that doesn't impede our ability to help others. It can actually, as we're realizing, help us to serve others really well, as long as we're willing to do the work and understand what distinguishes our stuff from our client's stuff and not to let those boundaries get blurred and and intersect. And that's why self-awareness is so important in this work, our own Mm -hmm. self-awareness. And that's why I believe that every social worker and every therapist should be in their own therapy because you are clearly doing the work on yourself. 
And that's mm-hmm. gonna that's gonna make you a great social worker. I mean, you're already clearly well on your way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that. So it's the truth. So I want to thank you for sharing all that you did of yourself and for taking the time to be with me. And I look forward to hearing how your (laughs) career path turns out, where you end up. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. (laughs) I really liked it. (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad. Okay. All right. Talk soon. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a question for me, follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Myers Pod. That's D-R-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-O-D. And send me a DM for a chance to get your question answered on the podcast. I've got some problems, yeah, I've got some questions. I need some help, point me in any direction. Clinical guidance is what I need to help me become who I'm meant to be. I've been searching for a teacher, another point of view. And I've been asking myself, what would Dr. Myers do?